Section 17 of The Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. Diversions of a Convalescent. Part 1. To one who, since boyhood and scarlet fever, had never known what it was to be kept for a day in bed by illness, the swift change from health and activity to the condition of a surgical case, helpless, inert, imprisoned, was startling in the extreme. A wild dream, it seemed to be, at the first return to consciousness. The reawakening came as if it were a rebirth, which, like its original, was only a sleep and a forgetting. Then one became suddenly aware that the world had shrunk into a small room, and that this new little world was filled with one's own petty personality and with naught else. All the interests of yesterday, all the thoughts of the waking hours, of public affairs, of private joys and personal cares, all alike seemed to have vanished. But their departure caused no sorrow. The vacant spaces, the empty air which they left behind, brought only a drowsy sense of rest and quiet. There was no longing to fill the void so suddenly created. Even the mere thought of attempting it was so wearying, so painful indeed, that it faded away with the visions of what once had been, leaving nothing but a sensation of peace and soft content. For the first days, lying chained in one position, it was enough to gaze through the window, to see the grassy slope climbing slowly among the grey ledges to the crest of the cliffs, and then beyond that crest to behold the ocean floor and the far horizon line. There was a peculiar joy in watching the darkness fade, as the vault of heaven filled with gradual light, while over all stole quietly the flush of dawn. Then the shadows appeared and shortened and disappeared, came again as the sun passed the zenith, and slowly lengthened until swallowed up in the gathering night. And against the darkening sky, where the gazer all motionless had seen the dawn, there now sprang out the flashing light from the high tower on the low ledge hard by which marked the entrance to the city's harbor while still beyond, far down on the horizon's edge, glittered another great light, which from its sunken reef pointed out for those who had gone down to the sea in ships the way to safety and repose. A few days passed, and then came another room, another window, and another view. Here the ocean seemed to lie at one's feet, no distant horizon line, but the coast on the other side of the broad bay, curving away in a line as beautiful as the Apulian shore, when we look at it from the Taormina. The infinite aspect of the sea, which, seen from the first window, knew no barriers until it washed the shores of Portugal, was gone. In its stead, in the place of the brooding peace of the unbounded ocean, came the life and motion of the waters chafing against the land. The great torches which beckoned to the huge ships, suddenly coming up out of the ocean wastes, no longer shot sharply through the darkness, and their place was taken by a quiet little light, burning with red steadfastness only to guide a few stray fishermen or small trading schooners as they made their way north and south, clinging to the coast, which is normally their safety, and at times, alas, their grave. The quiet red light had a calm, domestic air, which seemed very soothing and comforting after the piercing flashes of the stern towers rising in lonely abruptness from the sea. October of last year, if not a close-bosom friend of the maturing sun, so far as any one could see, 
was certainly a season of mists. For five days the New England coast was wrapped in a fog of unequal duration and density. Yet to one with naught to do but watch, it was soon made manifest that these sea mists were not guilty of the blank absence of change so dreary to the impatient passengers on fog-bound ships. Without apparent reason the mists would retreat, and the rocky coast emerge as if suddenly reborn into the world. Then the mist columns would come marching back with gathered reinforcements from the ocean, and all things on land and sea would vanish behind the soft gray veil. Sometimes they would creep in over the surface of the water, and all on the sea level would disappear, leaving the lighthouse up aloft, vivid and distinct, looking down upon the eddying wreaths below. And then again they would drift back high up, and the light above would be lost while all the edges of the rocks would be clear upon the waterline. All these movements, sudden, surprisingly destitute of reason or apparent cause, were graceful and beautiful, concealing an invisible force which is so impressive to the finite sense, and all the more so here from the extreme gentleness with which it moved. Two fogs succeeded storms, and with the storms came a heavy surf. The slow, gliding movements of the mist were gone, and the whole scene was pervaded with a restless violence. By the hour together the onlooker could watch the waves climbing the reefs and cliffs along the outstretched line of rock-bound coast, only to fall back and come roaring in again, masses of white and angry foam, impelled by hidden forces, exuberant in all the infinite variety which can never grow stale to those who gaze with wonder. Across the clouds and rain swept the great gulls who come from Labrador to pass the winter in the milder climate of Massachusetts. To see them soaring up and down, floating easily upon the gale, careless of rain and wind alike, is a beautiful sight, a spectacle of grace and power which never wearies. As one watches the wonder grows, and ever more insistently the watcher asks how many eons of time nature consumed in the evolution of such perfect flying machines. Nearer home were six crows who had been living on the point for some weeks. They moved about, consulted together, went from tree to ground and back again, and presented always that exhibition of busy idleness which has such an enduring charm to those whose lot it is to labor in this workaday world. But it was at night that the second window had its most enthralling charm. In the darkness the broad waters of the bay stood out with a still deeper blackness, cold, unrelenting, unwavering. It seemed so unfeeling, so final, that one shrank from it as if it symbolized the last great blank when all material things have perished. Then one raised his eyes, and far across the bay, white and luminous above the blackness of the sea, shone out the electric lights along the shore. They seemed very human, very kind and friendly, those lights across the bay, and on the rare nights when the sky was clear it needed but another lift of the eyes, and one saw the stars in all their steady splendor, while toward morning the waning moon would cast its pale light through the air, and the darkness of the waters would soften and take on the purple tone of Homer's wine-dark sea. Yet the pleasantest memory of that scene of night is, after all, those lights across the bay, which seemed to bring hope and rest and peace when the dark water had been passed and the tired sight lost all weariness as it met the glow of the human lamps and, far above, the unchanging glitter of the stars. 
All these sights, thus seen from two windows, had been part of his existence, from the day when the convalescent first opened his eyes upon the world about him. The sky and sea, in all their moods, had been the friends of a lifetime. Every ledge, every reef, every pool teeming with life, every bend and curve in the coastline were known to him with a more minute knowledge than anything else on earth. Yet now, as the mind began at intervals to pass outside the mere physical conditions of the body, it would rest with a sensation of deep repose upon those familiar sights, and find in them beauties and reflections, not without depth of meaning, never noted in all the years which had gone before. They all seemed full of voices, and the voices were saying, Look at us. You thought you knew us well. But we are filled with undiscovered beauties, and we have many secrets yet untold. At the same time the mind, as it reawakened, recoiled as at the outset from all which had occupied it in the daily round of life now so remote. The thoughts would not take their wonted course. The effort to make them do so was not only forbidden, but was too laborious to be attempted. So the thoughts, thus set free, turned first without strain, entirely of themselves, quite restfully to the familiar sights of ocean and land and sky which came unaided to the field of vision. It seemed like a voyage of discovery, with ever new delights, as the eye unmoving read the twice-told tale. It was beyond measure interesting to cease from all effort to apply one's mind, and to allow the vagrant thoughts to stray whithersoever they would in glorious irresponsibility. Very soon indeed they began to extend their journeys, and to travel from the visible world into the world of books, not that book world which is filled with unconcerning facts and crowded with the gathered knowledge of the centuries, but that far fairer world which is the creation of imagination. The convalescent restored to health and strength remembers well the first thought, which was not a part of what he saw, and which floated into his head on one of the first mornings as he watched the dawn. It brought with it the memory of certain lines in Matthew Arnold's well-known poem, The Wish, Bathed in the sacred dews of morn, the wide aerial landscape spread. The world which was ere I was born, the world which lasts when I am dead. Which never was the friend of one, nor promised love it could not give, but lit for all its generous sun, and lived itself, and made us live. The lines are as familiar as they are beautiful. They come from a melancholy poem. But at that moment there seemed in them no shade of sadness, only sympathetic feeling, a consoling and tender loveliness. It also happened that during the summer just past, the convalescent had read the Odyssey. Now his mind went back to it, and all the stories came drifting by, each one bringing a picture which seemed to frame itself in the window and find its scene upon the cliffs with their ocean background. Chief among them, most constantly visited, was the return of Odysseus in disguise, and the slaying of the suitors in the hall, perhaps the greatest story, merely as a story, ever written. In some unexplained way the incident of Argos seemed to stand out especially among all the others, and the convalescent found himself with his well-nigh all-forgotten Greek, trying feebly, and yet without a sense of effort to put the lines together. They are few indeed, no great feat to say them over, if one can but recall them, which the searcher could not do except in fragments. 
there lay the dog Argos, full of vermin. Yet even now, when he was aware of Ulysses standing by, he wagged his tail and dropped both his ears, but nearer to his master he had not now strength to draw. And then... But upon Argos came the fate of black death. That is all. The recognition of the master when all others fail, and then the death of the old dog. There is deep pathos in it, in the contrast between the loving instinct of the animal and the human forgetfulness of the absent. I am as true as truth's simplicity, and simpler than the infancy of truth. We must turn to another great genius to find the phrase which exactly describes the imagination from which came forth the tale of the Odyssey. It so happened that a few weeks later the reviving convalescent read a book which contained a burlesque of Homer. The last sentence of this bit of humor may also have been intended to be comic, or perhaps was written in the profoundest irony, but it seemed as if it was seriously meant. The author wished universities to understand what the classics really were, quote, only primitive literature, in the same class as primitive machinery, and primitive music, and primitive medicine, unquote. The convalescent wondered as he read this observation what the author meant by primitive, for Homer's men were much farther removed from primitive man in the scientific sense than we are from the men of the Iliad. The statement, however, although occurring at the end of a burlesque of Homer, referred to the classics generally. So the convalescent diverted himself by wondering whether the writer regarded the authors of the Republic, the politics, and the De Natura Rerum as primitive men. The distinction between intellectual power and mere knowledge of accumulated facts seemed in some way to have been lost sight of, and the convalescent tried to think of the men in our own radiant civilization who in mere naked power of thought and intellect surpassed Plato and Aristotle and Lucretius. Their names did not at the moment occur to him, probably on account of his weakened condition. Most of all, the convalescent marveled at the queer theory that primitive men should not be able to produce works of the imagination because they were destitute of modern machinery. He had always thought that among so-called primitive people, in the dawn of civilization, the imagination was unusually strong, just as it is in a child compared with the grown man. This he had believed to be a truism, and indeed he well knew that it was one of the commonplaces glorified by Macaulay, to borrow Carlyle's phrase. Did not a genius greater even than Homer, he said to himself, touched the last scene of a royal tragedy with the bitter memory of a loved and faithless horse? Who can forget the effect produced by the thought of Roan Barbary upon the fallen and imprisoned king with sudden death lurking behind the arras? The conversation with the groom is simple, commonplace almost, in expression, and yet it conveys a sense of pathos, and misery so poignant that it pierces the heart. Then, as the convalescent reflected still further upon the dog Argos, there came to him the memory of a great actor moving crowded audiences to smiles and tears by saying in a quiet voice, quote, If my dog Schneider were here, he would know me, unquote. just as the rhapsodists moved the Greeks by repeating in noble verse the twice-told tale of Odysseus and his old hound. It seemed as if we, too, must be primitive, or else that the poet who sang of Achilles's wrath touched a chord which always vibrates, and had in all he wrote the quality of the eternal so long as human nature exists. Perhaps, after all, he was neither primitive nor modern, but simply a great genius. 
From Homer, the convalescent's mind wandered happily, and of its own accord to the poetry of his own language. He found himself trying to repeat verses which, without any will of his own, came fluttering into his mind. He was struck by the fact that those which came first were not from the poets of the nineteenth century, among whom are numbered some of the best-loved and most familiar, but were from the Elizabethans, from the seventeenth-century poets, from the song-writers of the great period of English song, from the bard sublime, whose distant footsteps echo through the corridors of time. One of the very first, why he could not tell, was Ben Jonson's very familiar stanza. Quote, it is not growing like a tree, in bulk doth make man better be, or standing long an oak three hundred year, to fall a log at last, dry, bald, and sere. A lily of a day is fairer far in May, although it fall and die that night. It was the plant and flower of light. In small proportions we just beauties see, and in short measures life may perfect be. Unquote. It is but one stanza on a poem of many stanzas not otherwise memorable. But as the convalescent repeated to himself the well-known lines, known by heart for so many years, suddenly he seemed to see, as he had seen in the familiar landscape spread before his eyes, a new beauty and deeper meaning, which he had never noticed before. In the lines he discovered, as he thought, a brief epitome of the Elizabethan genius. In the first and last verses were the aphorisms full of wisdom and reflection, condensed, concise in which the Elizabethan so delighted, and then in the middle flashed out the tender and exquisite image of the lily, all compact of imaginative beauty. With unerring voice the poet touches that high note which they all in that day seemed able to do whenever they really tried. Even in the midst of their extravagances and conceits, and all the other faults and failings which were the ephemeral children of the fashion of the day, scores of critics and lovers of poetry probably had observed all this before in these same verses, but it came to the convalescent as a discovery, and he felt as much happiness as the, quote, watcher of the skies, unquote. Quote, when a new planet swims into his ken, unquote. This stanza of Ben Jonson happened to stray into his mind first, why he could not guess, but his thoughts ranging at will through the wide spaces of memory turned naturally and chiefly to Milton and Shakespeare above all to the latter. Passages from Paradise Lost, from Lycidas, Legro, Il Penseroso, the Samson Agonistus, and the Comus, and the lines from the sonnets, came unbidden in the silence of such time. They were only fragments, but there was an endless pleasure in trying to recite them, to see how far the convalescent could go, and there was something infinitely soothing and satisfying in their noble beauty and in the mere perfection of the words and rhythm. For Milton is the greatest master of metrics in English, and makes an appeal, possibly only to the, quote, Chief of organic numbers, old scholar of the spheres, thy music never slumbers, but rolls about our ears, for ever and for ever, Yet it was to Shakespeare, best known and best beloved, that the convalescent's mind turned most constantly, his words recurred unceasingly as the thoughts, effortless and unfettered, flitted here and there. Passages from the plays, entire sonnets, repeated themselves to the convalescent, 
some over and over again, always with a sense of peace and deep content. Familiar again is the sight of sea and rock and sky outside the window. They seemed now to be filled with beauties never seen, and music never heard before. Kind hands had placed beside the bed the golden treasury and the Oxford book of English verse, and one day not long after the swift reduction to immobility had befallen the convalescent, he stretched out his hand, took up the golden treasury, opened it at random, and read one Shakespeare sonnet. The physical act of reading those fourteen lines seemed a most remarkable and fatiguing feat at the moment, but once accomplished it filled some hours with pleasure as the convalescent gazed through the yet another window at a sunset fire kindling the clouds, and quietly reflected on what he had just read. The ability to read, after this first memorable experiment, came back more rapidly than any other, and in a little while it was possible to read many lines, instead of only fourteen. End of section 17